Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 283 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I'll talk to Joel Stack of Skybox Labs about their arcade action puzzle adventure, Stella. This game is actually very, very good. I highly recommend it. Uh, especially on the Switch. It's good, but it's on other platforms as well. But yeah, I play on the Switch a lot. It's great. Really good fun. I actually streamed it as well a few weeks back. You can go to uh, the YouTube channel for Kane and Rinse there and actually look it up. It's great. So uh, without further ado, let's listen to me from the distant past. Well, not so distant. A few weeks back. Five or six weeks. Doesn't matter. Chris, if you'd be so kind. Joel. Hello. Hello. Who are you? (laughs) What do you do? Hi, I'm Joel Stack. I'm the design director at Skybox Labs, and I have been working in game development in design for nearly 15 years, with the last nine of those years being at uh, Skybox. Nice. So, we almost stumbled into the second question, which is a common common thing that happens in this show. Because developers talk about themselves and they start to talk about their history very quickly. That's fine. But <laughs> you, you, you managed to stop. Good, good man. I appreciate that, Joel. Thank you. You're welcome. But what did <laughs> I you, don't how did you make your start making video games? Uh, so I got my start uh, in game development working at EA Games uh, here in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, and I initially started working in uh, quality assurance. And very quickly, I had a strong interest in design work. And I was working closely with an embedded team at the time. And I made the transition over to design, working as a primarily a level designer on Medal of Honor for the PSP. Um, And my big break, actually, was uh, at the time, EA had been primarily focused on what they called the hardcore gamer crowd. Uh, So that was, you know, the gamers who were all about the sports sims and the first-person shooters. Um, And so EA had been really focused on those types of games. And Nintendo DS had come out, but was kind of ignored. We had a little bit of um, some ported games over to it. Um, And then the Wii had just launched as well. And me and a friend, we were really enamored by the Nintendo DS and the Wii. 
And we had been talking about how much fun would it be to develop a family-friendly game, um, something that was uh, something that kids and parents could play together, that we could kind of capture the sense of your youth. And we had been talking about this idea of what if there was a collection of playground games, um, something like that took place on a school with, you know, soccer and tetherball and all these kinds of games. And anyway, we were both young, we were inexperienced, but our uh, executive producer at EA at the time in the group called Fusion, uh, he had a very open door policy where anybody could pitch to him. So we being young and ambitious said, okay, let's put a pitch together and we'll, we'll, we'll try it. Um, and we did, and we were incredibly fortunate in that we pitched the right game at the right time. Uh, because the we had been such a huge success, it kind of caught people off guard a little bit how uh, how successful it was. EA had been saying, we need to be in this space as well, and we need to have games that are outside of our regular library. Uh, and our pitch came across our executive producer's desk, uh, and it was a family-friendly, sort of kids-focused game, and we got the green light to go ahead with it. So as I wrapped up, Medal of Honor, uh, he gave us a small development team and said, you know, go ahead and make this game. And so that was kind of really my big break into design is that uh, um, I got to actually work on a game that I had pitched with a coworker. And uh, that's kind of the history of how I started. <laughs> and the interesting thing, too, is actually the uh, a lot of the people I work with now, a lot of my colleagues at Skybox Labs are people I met in those days, um, people who worked with me on Playground and then on future titles as well what was the game you didn't um... oh sorry it was called it was actually called playground so uh it was launched as ea uh ea playground ea sports playground um okay. and it was on nintendo ds and on nintendo wii and you know it was a it was a moderate success it didn't like break any records or anything like that but it was something that uh, had been close to me and my coworker's heart. It was something that we were just excited to try making. And uh, it was also sort of the, like I said, kind of like my my big doorway into full-on design work. Yeah, I mean, that, that era of, uh, of the, the Wii and the PSP and stuff, it's a very interesting period. Um, people would think it's like five years ago. It, it wasn't really, it's much, much longer, I'm afraid. It yeah, it, it was... <laughs> It was a very interesting time, and uh, it was a very fun project to work on. Um, and then I, I worked on several other uh, uh, Wii and uh, DS sort of games in the next few years while I was still at EA. Uh, we worked on a, a sports game called uh, EA Sports uh, Active, which was a fitness game, um, which I think was also an internal pitch, possibly. Um, but it was uh, it was a, it was a fun time. The the Wii really shook things up in game development. Um, it kind of opened up the market to a large number of people who were not, you know, not core gamers or didn't identify as gamers. Um, and it was kind of a fun time because people who were not traditionally into video games started playing video games. And uh, it was a very exciting kind of like shakeup of the, the industry and of the audience. Yeah, and it's interesting what's happened. Uh because it didn't stick, um, you know. For some reason, good or ill, um, the the focus shifted again 
to another place, and I can't describe what it is. I'm not going to say, oh, we've got back to Corv. No, that's not true at all. In fact, the game we're going to talk about today is, is born from another place. Uh, and, yes. Uh, so it's like, well, where is it now? What happened to the motion controls? Hmm, what happened to them? I think you'll find them on PSVR and stuff like that now. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah you know, that, that's true. We're a bit of virtual green room, everyone, but we were talking about uh, Beat Saber, which is I was on the Kane Rinse episode for that uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, yeah, we were just talking about that. That's a that's a gateway game. I mean, it, it you, is. When you describe it to people, like, what do you do? Just wave, wave lightsabers at boxes. Oh, okay. Well, you and I know that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good. That's a good fantasy to sell, actually. Like, it, it is, I think yeah. you can get people. Uh, you know, people might be a bit self-conscious if you say you're going to be uh, sort of dancing and yeah, yeah. moving the music, that. but yeah, you but if you say, that. yeah, you're going to... Yeah. Yeah. You, just, you just wave your arms around and move, cut the boxes up. Not true, <laughs> not true. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you'll be using using lightsabers to music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then it's super hot as well and stuff like that. And, and there's, Which I mean, is fantastic. It's magnificent, absolutely magnificent game. Uh, and bonkers as well. <laughs> um, when I remember playing it first at some demo pod, like, what is this? Why is it called super hot? And why is this man saying it really strangely? What? What's that? Up- why, is, mm, why is it all CRT? Don't understand. But yeah, we digress. But- it's you know, I was playing the Wii the other week. I was playing a bit trip games. Remember those? Really? Yeah, I do. Yes. Yeah, I haven't fun. fired up my Wii in years, but uh, yeah, that's amazing. Just suddenly, what's sitting there? Like, we're still hooked up, don't I? Was the Wii U was hooked up? Because I was playing, yeah, I was playing Wonderful One Hundred One because I was doing a research thing, and mm-hmm. I thought, okay, well, what's? Uh, oh yeah, I remember I got Wii games on here, and I still flicked it on, and I was playing. I found myself playing Bit Trip Core and Bit Trip Runner, and I, I do remember those. Those were fun. Yeah, yeah. they were amazing. Eleven years ago, those games. 11 years. Oh, t- <laughs> 2010, 2011. That's when they came out. 2009, 2010. Unbelievable. Anyway, so that's a really storied history. But obviously you branched out and left EA and moved on. When did that happen? What, what, what caused you to do that? So that was about, let's see, I think that was 2010. And uh, I was going through some... Uh, know some family changes i had my first child in 2010 and i'd been at ea for well i guess it'd been about six years or so and i was you know it was a great company i loved working for them but i was also feeling like i needed a change um i was feeling a little bit stuck in a rut and i had made some very good friends with uh some colleagues and a few of them had been discussing starting up uh, a new company, um, something a little bit more indie. um, And they had left EA and they had gone on to form Skybox Labs. And I had really enjoyed working with them. I'd worked uh, with them in the past on several titles. And I saw this as a huge opportunity. It was a big risk, but it was also a huge opportunity to work on uh, things that were a little bit less, you know, I guess, understood. Uh, EA had a very kind of uh, strong, but um, sort of a method of just sort of making the same games. Um, you know, not that they didn't take risks, but there was sort of a, this is the way things are done. And I was excited to try something new um, and the chance to sort of make something we were a bit more passionate about. 
Um, so I left EA and I joined Skybox Labs, and that I was one of the first employees. I think when we first started, there was there was only eight of us, and we were in this tiny little office. Um, and most of the people I was working with at Skybox were XEA. There was a few new people who I hadn't met before. Um, and I've been with them since. I've been with them. Uh, I think we just celebrated our ninth anniversary in April. And uh, yeah, we've worked on a lot of cool uh, projects. We we do a lot of work with uh, uh, Microsoft. So we've done quite a few projects with them and a few other uh, larger companies as well. We've done a, um, a lot of co-development projects. Um, and we have started working on some of our own IP, which has been very exciting. So a few years back, we launched a game called Tasty Lethal Tactics, which was a uh, simultaneous turn-based tactics game where you control these, these soldiers and you plot out your moves and then uh, you can simulate how the action is going to go down and you try and predict what your opponent's going to do. And then you both commit your turns at the same time and see how it plays out. And that was a very fun uh, game to, for us to develop. And then most recently was Stella, which was uh, the game we've been working on the last little bit. Uh, and we just launched that as well last year, which has been a very exciting time for us. And yeah, we're looking forward to continuing with this and developing our own IP. And so we are in the middle of doing that right now. So many platforms as well. Well, we'll talk about that later. But yeah, what what a, what a place we find ourselves in. I mean, who saw Apple Arcade coming? I mean, that that that's a platform, <laughs> you know that's 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 a platform. Where you go, well, so my my Apple TV is now a video game console. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and it, and it makes sense. Like you're right. It's uh, I'm not sure it's something we saw coming, but it, no. it makes a lot of sense. And yeah. uh, I have uh, like a sister, for example, who's not really into video games much. Um, she has her her two kids and her husband. They don't actually own like I think they have a PlayStation still, yeah, like a, yeah, a, yeah. an original PlayStation. Um, but they all you know they're they're an Apple household and they have Apple devices all over the place. And so when it came out, I mentioned it to them, saying, "Hey, you guys should look into this. You might be into it." And they've gotten it, and they said that they are loving it. Like you know, their yeah. their daughters playing the. Uh, the sneaky Sasquatch game, and it's like her favorite game right now. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely a, a great platform for you know the audiences that are a little intimidated by you know do I want to buy a you know a next gen console or do I want to invest in buying a gaming PC where they already have all these Apple devices and they can just turn them into gaming systems. Indeed, indeed, um, little black box that sits on the shelf. Is uh, mm-hmm. I've, got, I've actually got a Nimbus sort of still controller, so I've actually got a proper arcade controller. So, you know, I'm just yeah, I'm just I'm just treating it like any other console, because you can you can actually use a proper controller with the uh, with even a Mac um, or or a computer or with the TV and uh, yeah, amazing stuff. There's some really Very good cool. games in there. What the golf's on there? Come on, keep thinking. So. Um, Next question then, and this one's quite nebulous, but uh, it's important to ask and to understand uh, <laughs> why, 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 why you know what, what drives you really uh, as Skybox Labs, or maybe yourself. I don't mind how you answer this one from, from what point of view, but um, what do you believe your biggest influences are? Mm, interesting. Okay, so I'll I'll speak for myself rather than Skybox specifically, but uh, okay. 
my biggest influences. So I, I've always loved uh, creating things and playing games. Um, I would say I got into gaming in the early to mid eighties. Um, you know, I, I remember the original Nintendo launching and being just obsessed with Mario brothers um, as well as uh, PC games. Um, I was very much into the adventure game era of uh, Sierra with King's quest and space quest and all of those quest games. Um, you know, I played a lot of, uh, of those adventure games and I was really obsessed with both creating my own sort of stories. You know, I would write them down on paper or running them almost like a tabletop RPG with my sisters where, uh, you know, you kind of come up with a, a plot to drive people forward and then you would, you know, they would make choices and then you would just sort of simulate the game in your mind and describe it. Um, but the first system that I actually saved up and bought for myself was uh, PlayStation. And it was a very influential system for me uh, because it was the first time where I really realized that games could be completely engrossing and really like capture an atmosphere uh, with like depth that rivaled other media like movies and things like that. And so I remember playing games like uh, Metal Gear Solid and Silent Hill uh, Final Fantasy VII, uh, Resident Evil. And I, I remember playing these games and experiencing them on an emotional level um, and just being completely captivated by the atmosphere that they would create. And that's a trend that has sort of stuck with me as I've gone forward. I, uh, you know, PlayStation 2 era, PlayStation 3 era, uh, PC games all at the same time. Um, I've, you know, as I got older and was able to afford more and more consoles, you know, I would start branching out and have all of them. But games like Eco, Shadow of the Colossus, uh, Dark Souls, um, all of these games that I would say I'm drawn to usually tend to be a little bit darker um, and adventure games or games with like a world and a story that you can kind of investigate on your own. Um, I, you know, I don't know if you've heard of those sort of like player archetypes, but I'm definitely an explorer, uh, type gamer. I enjoy seeing the details that game developers put into their worlds. Um, I enjoy having it be off the beaten path, um, the kinds of games where, you know, there's a plot that drives you forward, but you can go off plot and you can sort of, you know, look at a location and see all these little details that, expand the world um that you know that you know they don't randomly get put you know they don't get randomly put into an environment if someone's created a house and they've decorated it in a certain way you know that that's intentional and that there's a reason why they did that and it may just be like hey it, it looks good but you know it's not like it's not just randomly thrown in there or generated so i've always really enjoyed that um and those those games that are rich with atmosphere have always really captured my imagination and it's something that I've always kind of brought forward with me as well. Um, it's wonderful yeah. you, you picked that up because I too am an explorer. Um, and uh, I, I mean, the original Assassin's Creed, a lot of people didn't like it, but I love the world that they created and the the fact that you could climb up and actually be rewarded for exploring. You know, the act of the, the mere act of it, the player, the, the player was rewarded for the effort put in yes. to finding every feather or whatever they were put across the map or or yes or, or, or postal or writing on the wall or something i thought it was magnificent yes there was flaws to the game as there are all games uh but that one that one also um mmos i would play a lot of mmos purely 
not so much the, well, you know, the social interaction as well on the, you know, the collective sort of experience, shared experience, but also to see the worlds other people have made and mm-hmm. to experience them. And, uh, and that's, that's with Stella. That's one of the reasons that one of the things that drew, drove me on through it is to say, what? What is going on? You know, what? That's good. What does yeah, that's happen? good to hear. What happened? And because it's clearly you enter a time when things things are bad, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, uh, things are very very bad. And uh, and during, I, mean, I actually streamed the, the the Stella a few weeks back. And uh, if you watch that on the archive on YouTube, on the uh, Kane and um, channel, uh, if you haven't subscribed, do so now. Um, is um, it uh, it has me saying these things, asking these questions: Who is she? What happened? What? Who's that? What? It's just that's really, you know, and you you get drip thread, and, and and it's just that exploration of finding other worlds and discovering other worlds and seeing what you know why these things exist, and that curiosity has driven me more than anything. That's why I'm not that massive an arcade game fan. I like playing them. I like it, but my skill hand hand to eye coordination isn't what it was. So for me to you know tackle asteroids now. This not so great, <laughs> you know. You know, a lot I, I, yeah, I feel the the same thing. I, uh, you know, it's funny as you as you get older, you're like you're you feel like your gaming reflexes do they they fall off a little bit. I'm playing games with my my children now, and uh, I'm sometimes amazed by their quick reflexes where they'll pick up a game, and I'm like, wow, you're actually. You're better at this than I am. <laughs> yeah. how, how did this happen? <laughs> it, it, it's going to happen eventually, and that's fine. But I think it's a great response. Is the, the sheer, the sheer desire to create worlds and share them with others is a wonderful, wonderful thing to 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 be driven by and to say, well, look, I like doing this. I'm sure others do, and you know that. And there are the archetypes, but you and I know that archetypes aren't strictly that. I mean, you will play. A sports game or something, which is no exploration at all. Well, that's not strictly true. There is aspects of that, but um, you explore other aspects of a game that sports, not the world, because you know it's the you know the simulation of the sport. Um, yeah, but, of course. Uh, and yeah, those are those archetypes are just a useful way to mm. kind of quickly discuss a, a type of gamer. But yeah, I think everybody's a little bit of all yeah. of them. Like, all you know, I'm definitely yeah. driven to achievement. Um, you know, if, if you want me to grind in your game if you give me some little objectives and say hey you're really close to getting this next objective yeah. i'll probably stick it out just to do it yeah. um yeah yeah like, there's will... all, all all the little pieces that they uh that you know different people enjoy about games I, yeah. I would say i enjoy all of them to a degree i will chop down a tree in animal crossing because hey i'm gonna get some miles for that apparently yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um so next question and this one's a toughie too, so bear with me. What developer do you most admire in the industry, and why? Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Uh, there are a lot of developers that I'm very inspired by uh, and admire. Um, how about uh, actually? I'll, I'll name uh, three. Uh, three sure, that kind of sure. come to mind. Yeah, sure. Fine. Okay. So I'll I'll go back into the uh, the history archives for the first one. Um, so one dev team that I've always been very uh, or I admire very much was uh, the original Team Silent that developed Silent Hill. 
Um, like I said, back on the PlayStation era, Silent Hill was a huge influence on me. Um, and uh, reading about them, just kind of reading about the history of how the game got developed, um, I was very impressed. So they were a small team of, uh, for lack of a better word, almost misfits or uh, uh, people who didn't quite fit in at the at Konami with their with the culture or whatever. And they had been kind of sequestered off on their own. And uh, at the time, Resident Evil had been a huge hit. And so they were kind of told, like, make a Resident Evil clone. And they were a bunch of people who, like I said, didn't quite fit in uh, and were kind of off on their own. And I think Silent Hill is an amazing game. And, you know, yeah, you could say it definitely borrowed some stuff from Resident Evil, but it's not a clone in any way. And I think they had an amazing vision for it and what kind of what a horror game could be back at a time when horror games were not really codified the way they are now. And they created this amazing uh, vision for a game that has gone on. It has a legacy today where people are still inspired by Silent Hill. Um, you know, the franchise is at its ups and downs as it's gone through its little development cycles and moved between teams and developers. But like even today, you know, there's there was that PT uh, demo that came out, uh, the Hideo Kojima Silent Hills, uh, which, you know, sadly doesn't look like it's going to happen. But even now there's rumors that there, there could be a new Silent Hill game. And I think that legacy is amazing. Uh, and I guess what I'm really, what I admire so much about that team is that they were able to create something original, even though the, you know, I feel like everything was stacked against them. You know, they were kind of put off on their own in this little, like, <laughs> you know, go sit in the closet and make this clone. And instead they made something that really, really was inspiring. Uh, so second, I'll go with uh, uh, Fumita Ueda and his team at uh, Sony, I guess Team Eco. So Eco and Shadow of the Colossus, again, were both games that really inspired me. Um, they're both just beautiful and atmospheric, and I completely lost myself in those worlds. And I think the thing I admire so much about their philosophy was uh, they used a, I guess, a game design philosophy called Design by Subtraction. And it's a minimalist uh, philosophy where they remove anything that's unnecessary to the game. And I think that is very impressive because it's not an easy thing to do. Um, you know, I think there's there's a couple trends. There's one in gaming, which is to make sure it seems valuable to consumers. We want to continue to layer on features and add and add and add. Uh, until this thing is so big and bloated that you it looks like a great deal. Um, and I think intentionally removing things from a game sounds that sounds like, well, it sounds hard to do for sure. Um, and you know you might also misinterpret that as, oh, well, it'll make the game easier or cheaper to make um, because we'll be cutting features. But what's in the game, they polish it and they make sure that it adds to the core experience that they're trying to create. So, you know, a game like Shadow of the Colossus, it has, you know, like little details like lizards that are wandering the uh, wilderness that you can find and catch. Like th that doesn't sound like something that you would say, oh yeah, that's, you know, a number one core feature, put it on the back of the box or anything like that. But it's a little detail that adds to the feeling of the world that they were trying to create. And so it stays and they polish it and they make it uh, interesting and make sure that it works well. And I just, I love that philosophy. I love, it's, um, it reminds me of the, you know, the whole idea of carving a marble statue and, you know, the art's there, but you need to chip away all of the unnecessary bits of marble to reveal it. 
Um, and I think it's a very cool way of approaching game design. Yeah, uh, um, and then, less is more. Is probably exactly. And what, what's there is important. Uh, and then lastly, I'll go with uh, uh, Miyazaki at uh, From Software. So it's a similar kind of story, I guess, to the uh, Team Silent story. But um, from what I've read about him, uh, so like Dark Souls uh, was a very influential game for me. Um, I've gone back and played Demon Souls afterwards. And now, now since then, I've stuck. I've played through all the Dark Souls. I played Bloodborne. I played Sekiro. I love From Software's games. Um, but yeah, reading about how it came to be and how uh, Miyazaki directed the game, it sounded like he started at From Software and, you know, uh, Demon Souls, or at least the game that became Demon Souls, was a project that was kind of floundering in the studio. No one really knew what it was supposed to be. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't seem like it was going anywhere uh, and it wasn't really coming together. And so Miyazaki saw that as a huge opportunity. And so he asked if he could take it over. Um, and the reason he wanted to do that is he had these really bold, risky ideas he wanted to do or wanted to try out uh, with a fantasy action RPG. Um, and he knew that if he took a game that was already kind of failing that no one seemed to really care about, he he wouldn't risk, you know, sinking a flagship title for the company uh, and that he could kind of try out these risky ideas and he'd probably be allowed to do it. And he did. And he he created Demon Souls, which has some crazy ideas. Like it, it went against a lot of, uh, I guess, the ideas that gaming was doing at the time where he made this game that doesn't handhold people. It doesn't, you know, it, it almost <laughs> goes the opposite. It doesn't tell you anything. Everything is very esoteric and bizarre. Uh, the multiplayer ideas are very different from everything else that we had seen at the time where you have these sort of invasions and these teamwork things where you can summon people in between worlds and it changes the state of things. And it, the whole game is designed around people overcoming these challenging uh, uh, obstacles that are thrown in front of them and also working as a group to kind of like decipher the world. Um, and I, I just found that a fascinating story and it obviously had a huge payoff for them because it led into, you know, dark souls and the whole dark souls franchise um, and then the other thing that really impresses me about uh, From Software and I guess uh, Miyazaki's direction with these games is that they haven't been content to just sort of keep doing the same thing. Like Dark Souls, Bloodborne, Sekiro, all these games, they share a core aspect of like combat is kind of, you know, the focus of the games, but they mix them up. And I think they they do very bold risks with each one. Um, like I would say with Dark Souls, the shield kind of combat was pretty iconic at the time. Like, you know, when you play Dark Souls, every player really understood the idea that you're going to have a big heavy shield and you're going to, you have to master timing your blocks and looking for an opening. And then when they came out with Bloodborne, they removed shields completely. And it became this game where, you know, you have no choice but to dodge and parry. Um, and then Sekiro has done the same thing again, where like, you know, they almost doubled down on the parry mechanic, but they all play so differently from each other, even though you can see the same kind of thread running through them. And I think it's uh, admirable that they would uh, continue to innovate in that way. And I, 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 I'm always very impressed with their games. Um, I would also say that I'm inspired by uh, a lot of the same uh, inspirations for their games. Um, there's the anime manga Berserk, uh, and I've always been a huge fan of that ever since I saw the anime way back in the 90s. Uh, and I've been reading the manga as well and uh, seeing how 
much Dark Souls borrows uh, thematically from Berserk is very fun for me. Just you know, seeing someone who is also obviously very taken with that with that world and seeing their interpretation of it in a game is kind of a it's a cool lens to see something that you also love. Uh, so yeah, I would say those are three uh, three developers. There's way more. <laughs> Uh, but those are three that I'm I'm very uh, inspired by or have very much admired. Yeah, what what a roster, what a roster of, of, of uh, <laughs> people there. And uh, I, I uh, recently recently acquired my own copy of Kingsfield, which is a oh, wow. precursor uh, game. It's uh, and uh, it's the PAL version, which is hard to come by. Uh, but I managed to get a copy, and it's real. It's like a genuine, like you know, not copy copy, but like. A, Retail yeah. copy, but they're hard to come by. Like I said, and also got that's what I have not played. And there's also Kingsfield Four, which came out on PAL on the PS2, and you can definitely see the lineage at all. And people forget that From Software, I believe they made Chrome Hounds. Barely certain they did. Or we're going mad, or was it someone else? I think they did. Yeah, was it? Yeah, they definitely yeah. had yeah. one that was. Uh, yeah, I. Yeah. Was it Chrome Hounds? Yeah, it may have been. Yeah. What a game that was. Uh, but that's a discussion for another time. Um, so let's uh, wrap up the first half. And thanks for that very uh, eloquent and just wonderful description as to why you're inspired by these people. So thank you. really appreciate that. Um, but what are you playing right now? So right now I have a handful of games on the go. Nice. Um, I am playing a lot of uh, Magic the Gathering Arena. Uh, I used to be a hardcore Magic the Gathering player back in my uh, high school and college days. Uh, and then I took a break from the game. Uh, I was like, I need to stop collecting all these little pieces of cardboard. Um, but then, yeah, when Magic the Gathering Arena, uh, I had been hearing a lot about it. And I started playing it, uh, you know, I don't know, it's been a few months now, like from maybe almost six months now. And it has uh, fully sucked me back in. Um, I'm playing a lot of it, and I really love the idea that I don't have to reserve space in my house for all these cards, um, but I'm working on my collection, and I'm playing the game. Uh, and then I also recently bought the uh, new XCOM, XCOM Chimera Squad, and I've been working my way through that, playing a couple missions every day. Um, I actually really like it. It's uh, I, I've been a huge XCOM fan ever since, like, you know, the original XCOM and XCOM 2. Um, I have played all of them pretty much. Oh, I've and, been playing uh, those games since the eighties, but you know, I'm British. Yeah, so, you know, Laser Squad and that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I played Laser Squad as well. Actually, that Laser Squad was uh, one of the influences for our uh, Tasty Lethal Tactics game. Oh nice. Um, it was one. It was one of the games we drew. Well, and stuff like that. Um, it's all on the spectrum. It was great. It was. Um, it was. Yeah, lovely, lovely times. Ugh. Anyway, uh, yes. and then yeah, so yeah, I've been playing through XCOM Chimera Squad and having a good time with that. And then uh, my kids, have, uh, they both really got into uh, Fortnite, and I never actually played Fortnite, but they were playing it, and I wanted to, you know, see what they love about it and share that experience with them. And so I made my own Fortnite account, and I have been playing that with my kids, and it's actually been a blast. I've been having so much fun. I think this must be what like sports dads feel like when, you know, they get to finally play, you know, baseball with their kids and their kids are good. And you're like, wow, this is, we're like a real team. And I'm having that experience with Fortnite where I'm playing with my, my kids and we're playing squads and, you know, my daughter's flying our helicopter while me and my son 
hang out the sides with our our rifles trying to pick off other players and it's been a lot of fun <laughs> yeah i mean i must confess i was more of a uh, I say was because I've moved on to other things, but PUBG player, I just love the fact that the sense of paranoia in those games, well, especially in PUBG, because you both, you play for a good 30, 35, maybe 40 minutes, and I'm telling you, Joel, nothing happens. Oh, yeah, you're nothing. sneaking around. Yeah, and you're just like, and you there'll be the arguments about, oh, there's the crate. We're not going to the crate. We are going to the crate. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> or the or the fun of like you know you're crouched in a bush and you've just been watching this yeah. one space and yeah you're like and you go, is someone around here yeah yeah movement movement what what seven there look 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 it's it's <laughs> that's that's a bush oh yeah yeah and then uh, the other game actually I played uh, I've completed was uh, Doom Eternal um, so uh-huh. I loved yeah. Doom 2016 uh-huh. uh, it was sort of I I did not anticipate I would love it so much. I did play uh, Doom and Doom Two tons, you know, back <laughs> back when they had originally came out. And uh, but I'm not I'm not a huge first person shooter player. I play a lot of them, but I'm not. I would not say that that's my my bread and butter. Um, and I bought Doom uh, Doom 2016 on a whim, and uh, I loved it. It was so much fun. And so uh, when Doom Eternal launched, I was like, okay, you know what? I liked that first one so much. I'm going to get this one. And I had a blast with it. It's, they they make an amazing game. Um, I love the uh, way that they've been, managed to sort of recapture the feeling of Doom. But obviously, it's way more polished with modern conveniences. Um, and I love their attitude uh, that they've kind of put into developing this game where, you know, the the excitement and the the feeling that they want the player to have, I feel like they nailed it. Uh, the idea that they want you to feel like this aggressive killing machine with their, like, they, you know, I think the phrase they've coined is uh, push forward combat, where, you know, in a lot of shooters, first person shooters, if you're, you know, if you're getting damaged too much, or you're running out of ammo, your instinct is to run away and go hide. That's what we were talking about with uh, these battle royale games where you almost like, oh, I have to, I have to retreat and go find ammo and health. Whereas in Doom, when you start seeing your health bar fall off or you're almost out of ammo, you go extra aggressive and you run to the demons and you, you're like, by killing demons, I will gain more health and I will gain more ammo. And I think it's just a brilliant uh, exercise, like in the idea of like, what kind of attitude do we want to create in our players? Uh, I'm very impressed with the way that they've pulled that off where they've made the Doom Slayer into this you know, you, you embody him, you play as the Doom Slayer would play. And it, it's very fun. What platform did you play on, may I ask? Uh, I played on uh, Steam PC. Yeah. Mouse and keyboard? Sorry, what's that? Mouse and keyboard. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, mouse and keyboard. Though I, I also do play with a uh, controller as well. Depends on my mood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just because... be- love the reaction spinning that you can yes. move. Oh. <laughs> it's so fast. It's so uh, fast. Uh, but because I like, I actually haven't even fired up the multiplayer. I've only played the single player. But because right. it is single player, um, and they do have you know very good uh, aim assist sort of uh, for the controllers and things like that. If I'm feeling kind of lazy and I just want to kind of mess around, I will plug in. Uh, I have a an Xbox uh, controller for my PC, uh, and if I want to like just sort of lounge around and you know play just for fun, <laughs> not play for serious, then I'll uh, use the controller. And I find that. Yeah, it's harder, or you're not quite as accurate, but in a single-player game, it's okay. The game's uh, balanced for it. 
Oh, I'm a big fan of p putting an Xbox One controller into your PC. Those D-pads are great. Way better than the 360 ones. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Big, big fan. Well, that's quite a roster of games as well. Good man. Yes. Good stuff. <laughs> right. Let's move on to the second half. So, we shall be delving deep into Stella. Excellent. So, first question isn't a question, it's a request. It's a request for you, in your own words, Joel. Tell us, what is Stella? What is Stella? Uh, Stella is, well, I'll, I'll use a little bit of our, our marketing spiel, but Stella is a cinematic platformer uh, that launched recently. It's on Apple Arcade, Nintendo Switch, Steam PC, and Xbox One. And it's a story, an adventure game about a young woman uh, witnessing the final days of a mysterious ancient world. Uh, it plays like a 2D side-scroller, but takes place in a fully 3D world. And uh, we really wanted to focus on creating a sense of grand scale, uh, depth in the uh, environments, uh, and just a really strong atmosphere. Um, yeah, I would say that kind of gives you your high level, what is Stella? Yeah. Doesn't do it justice, in my humble opinion. But what are you going to do? <laughs> Trying to do an elevator pitch on this game is is a is a fool's errand, in my humble opinion. <laughs> but uh, you did you did well. You did well. Now, rather than me flesh out that, which I usually do on the show, um, I think what I'm going to do is use the questions to flesh out the game, uh, because mm -hmm. that's what Stella's about. Because more than ever, um, especially with Stella, I don't want to spoil anything. We have to speak in abstract terms, as we normally do on this show. Everyone knows that. But especially adventure games like this. Um, in the previous episode, we covered Rookie, and that's an adventure game as well, and we had to be very careful and tiptoe around <laughs> content very, very carefully. So um, in, in, in a similar theme, similar vein, I should say, 
let's carry on with our first design question, which is... Stella assumes a lot on the player in terms of how they interact with the main character. Why was this adopted for the design of the game? Yeah, good question. Uh, So, uh, with Stella, we knew that we wanted to create a cinematic experience. Um, One of our goals right from the get-go was to create something that just had this air of mystery uh, and strong atmosphere to it. And we knew that we wanted to have something that would be emotionally engaging and that kind of anyone could experience. And that was one of the reasons why we actually settled on doing a cinematic platformer is because we knew that uh, cinematic platformers, you know, they go all the way back to games like the original Prince of Persia or Out of This World, Another World, um, and, you know, even before that. Uh, And we knew that there's sort of this, um, I guess, codified sort of uh, understanding of how platformers work. You know, Mario on the original Nintendo was a side-scroller. And uh, people can play them, first of all. They can play them uh, generally easier than if you have a full 3D game that you're running around and controlling the camera. I think we've all seen, you know, those videos of a player who's never really played a game before trying to play something like, you know, Counter-Strike, and they can't even figure out how to point the camera, let alone play the game. Um, Whereas a side-scroller doesn't have those issues. People can kind of just pick it up and understand what they're looking at. They think of a TV or a computer monitor screen as sort of a canvas, and you're moving across it. Um, And so these were all all things that were factored into us, uh, knowing that we wanted to have very little uh, user interface, and we wanted to have uh, very little, like, on-screen... Um, instructions, sort of say, here's what you need to do. We wanted people to just sort of be able to fire up the game and start playing it and then uh, discover it on their own. Um, So by intentionally uh, limiting all the uh, options that were in the game, so and this comes down to kind of like what you can do as well. So, you know, you played it, but Stella is a game where you don't have a ton of moves or abilities. You You can run and walk, you can jump, you can climb, uh, you can interact with things by like grabbing onto them and pulling them or pushing them. But it's it's a very small tool set. And by doing that, by limiting how many different interactions the character has, uh, it also lets players solve puzzles in a, I guess, in a better way than if you had to, you know, come up with a, a screen that says, here's what you need to do every time you come up to a new puzzle. Um, Instead, we can kind of throw an obstacle at the player. They can get stuck for a little bit, and they know that, you know, one of the, you know, I have the full toolkit at my disposal at all times. So if I'm stuck in a room and there's a, there's only a few different ob- objects in this room, I know generally what my moveset will allow, and I just have to figure out how to use it properly to solve this puzzle. I don't have to, like, you know, have learned a new skill that I haven't learned yet. I don't need to have mastered some kind of ability that... You know, I may I may not be a good enough player to master. Um, everything I need is here with me, and I can do it. And so, we hopefully have created a game where you know the player can experience it that way um, without ever getting taken out of the atmosphere by having to like read a bunch of instruction screens or watch a cutscene that explains what you're trying to do. Yeah, it assumes a lot on the players. I've already said, but it also assumes their level of intellect and knowing inquisitiveness and so 
Okay. Oh, I can move left and right with the left stick. Okay, that's standard. Can I jump? Yes. Okay, but a little bit, not much. Oh, I can interact with things as well. Cool. Anything else? Nope, that's it. Okay, fine, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it does. We did want players to explore that. Like, uh, yeah. I think, you know, in our conversation already, we've talked a bit about how we're, you know, we're both kind of explore, explorer players who are mm -hmm. driven by our curiosity. And, you know, Stella is a game for those kinds of players where we, you know, I... You know, in, I would always say, you know, there's probably are players who would want to have just an upfront, here's my instructions, here's what I need to do. Um, but we did want to really appeal to the players who really do want to just kind of have their curiosity teased and uh, be able to discover these things on their own. Indeed. Indeed. Next question. Um, what we haven't really delved into is, well, you have you did, that's just not true, you did open up with how the state of the world Stella finds themselves in or it, what, it, what, it, what it is. Things are, you know, going south very quickly uh, or have gone south. Um, and there is a constant state of what I can describe as anxiety uh, and threat in Stella. It's obviously anything, it's very, even the opening section, which I'm not going to spoil at all, everyone, but right from the outset, it's like, this is, yeah, if you don't, if you make one misstep or you, if you make it, you know, assumptions or you um, are carefree, you will likely come to your um, uh, come to an end. Uh, and um, so, what do you hope drives the player on to overcome these actual and very real threats they find themselves in within the game of Stella? Yeah. So, like you mentioned, sort of a state of anxiety. Um, that's mm. a that's a good description. Um, we often used the word tension as one of our like key atmosphere words. Uh, so yeah, Stella. It's a game about uh, a dying world. It's a world that's on its last legs, um, and we wanted to capture this sort of feeling of inevitable doom that's just on the horizon. So you you're right. You are you are seeing a world that is in a very bad state. Uh, and I guess to answer your question, the main thing that we uh, wanted to use to drive the player forward is a desire to see this world that they're exploring. So every environment is quite different from the others. Um, and the story that we are trying to tell is one about witnessing the end of this world to the point that we wanted every area to represent different ideas in a way of how a world could end. So we have areas that are... Uh, trying to convey feelings of uh, famine and plague. We have, uh, you know, worlds or areas that are uh, frozen um, and civilization has disappeared. Um, you know, I don't want to go too much into spoilers, but it's in our trailer. So we have like an area where there's literally fire raining from the sky uh, and there's monsters, there's animal-like beasts, there's these somewhat demonic creatures. Uh, there's ancient beings that are awakening. But the idea is that you're seeing all these almost biblical uh, disasters taking place. And so the hope is that the player's curiosity is what pulls them forward. Um, and the other thing that we really wanted to explore uh, was that feeling of overcoming adversity. So the game is very challenging. Uh, you will likely die. I'd be very surprised if a player managed to go through the game without dying. Um, but we tried to be generous with our checkpoints because the goal was not to make it a game of skill. It's not supposed to be the hardest game ever or anything like that. But we felt that death was an important element of communicating the feeling we were trying to uh, convey. 
Uh, and we want players to have that feeling of overcoming dread uh, and pushing through your fear uh, to accomplish your goals. And so, you know, like it's a minor thing, but like we even have an achievement when you first die in the game. Uh, and the description is uh, encourages the player to not give up that this is not the end. Um, death is not the end of your journey. Um, and so the, all these things were, uh, I guess, why we want the player to continue to go forward is we want them to, I guess, have their curiosity peaked so that they want to see what happens next. Uh, and by doing so, they overcome the adversity that's put in their path. Oh, the many, many adversities <laughs> that are put in the path. Um the player's awareness is critical in Stella, absolutely critical. Um, and the awareness of the uh, of the environment they're in and how they interact with it. How do you communicate this to the player? Do you think? So we have, I guess, several different ways that we do that. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, Stella is, like I said, it's a three D game uh, where you as a character are moving in, you know, what we would say 2D, even though it's not totally 2D, but you're moving left to right, you you know, you're interacting with things, you know, either on the left or the right or above or below you. Um, but the world is fully 3D, and the things that you can interact with are also in that 3D world. So one of the, the things was, um, I guess it's a, it's a little subtle, but in the environments themselves is anything that we want the player to interact with obviously has to be on the player's path. Um, and that's, that's sort of the obvious one. Um, but we also had to intentionally kind of create a little bit of a bubble around the player path where things that are not meant to be interacted with, uh, either if they look like they could be interacted with, we had to make sure that we pushed them off the path. You need to put them further in the background or further in the foreground so that players don't go like, oh, am I supposed to somehow use this object? But how do I get to it? So that's that was just like, you know, your basic level design kind of implementation of it. Uh, but the other thing is we also really wanted to make it as clear as we could without a whole bunch of UI prompts uh, about what you could and could not interact with. So a couple of the other tricks we use is uh, we up the saturation on things that can be grabbed onto. So different things like uh, levers and switches or handles on things are brighter uh, than the background. Um, and hopefully that's just a subtle enough clue that players' eyes are drawn to them. Uh, and then the character themselves, since that's what you're watching the whole time, we have the character convey kind of what gameplay you should be thinking about. So uh, with certain objects, especially if they're not directly on your path, she will she'll look at them. So as you're walking by an object, if you see her head sort of tilt up or down to look at something, it's something she's noticed and the player's eye is on the character. So they hopefully will look to see what she's looking at and notice that as well. Uh, and then uh, we also have uh, uh, sort of the way she moves as well will change. So if you're in an area where there's uh, monsters around that you need to be hiding from, she will automatically start walking in a sneakier movement set than if she was just running casually. Uh, and if you stop behind an object that she can hide, she will crouch down for you and go into like a very stealthy crouch. Um, and vice versa, if something is chasing you, she will automatically start uh, running a little bit faster in a more frantic kind of uh, sprint. Uh, and for me, yeah, that's really fascinating how 10, 15 years ago, 
you, the player, would have had to have crouched. You would have had to have run. You'd have to evoke that. The failure mechanism would be because you didn't crouch in time. Well, yes. And was now it's very much, it's just fuss. It's just fiddling. It's just, that's not the point. It's not what we're trying to achieve here. You don't they need to tell you to crouch. Of course you're going to freaking crouch. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and actually, it's something we played around with. Like in certain, mm. in uh, earlier builds of the game, uh, we even did explore having uh, crouch be an intentional thing that you needed to do. Um, but we we found that, kind of like what I was talking about before, is where we wanted players to be able to just kind of drop in and start playing this game. Um what we found is that when we had a crouch button or a run button or any of those types of things that people would start playing with it and they would they would start experimenting with crouch to go, what else can I do with it? Like, can I, you know, if I crouch over here, can I do anything? And they would almost become uh, bogged down with these, like I said, these options of things that they might be able to do. And we found it sort of distracted from the experience in a way. Um, whereas like when you need to crouch, if you need to hide, um, if people missed that, if they didn't realize they needed to crouch, then they felt like, you know, that the, the game was being unfair to them. And, and if they did know that they could crouch, they would, they would just do it. Like it's, it's kind of obvious where you need to crouch. And so by forcing them to do it manually, we found like, it makes the character seem a little less intelligent and it makes the experience feel a little less cinematic. And so it was something that we chose to have sort of be an automatic uh, action as long as you're in the right place. Like you can't, you know, you don't just automatically hide. You do have to still play the game and realize what you need to do. But that little bit of uh, early warning, I guess, where the character reacts just a little bit faster than you and tells you when she's feeling nervous um, I think it adds to the atmosphere because actually that's another thing I'll, I'll bring up is that uh, we w- we didn't want to like break the player out of the atmosphere whenever we could. So um, in a section that's supposed to be very tense, like, you know, if there's a, a monster just off in the background and you're supposed to be hiding, if, if you as a character just kind of like run around and jump and you look kind of like, hey, I don't care, you know, danger doesn't matter, it looks kind of silly and we wanted to have the character react to her environment realistically and sort of show you that she's nervous so even though you're still in control of her the emotions are hopefully still coming through um and so that was yeah we went back and forth a little bit on that uh and but we we always knew that we wanted the character to be one of the communication tools in the game um because like i said it's where the player's eye usually is. And uh, so we felt like by putting these like sort of subtle animations on her, we could help communicate what the player needs to do and also uh, continue to develop that uh, emotional experience. Um, and then lastly, actually, just the last sort of thing that we added to the, the game um, was this was more of a response to some of our early feedback where players were saying like they found that it was a little bit too... Uh, uh, obtuse. They were like, oh, wait, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be able to do. Uh, we did add a slight glint of light on objects that could be interacted with, but we only use it for the first few objects. Um, so, you know, if there's something that can be pushed early on, it will have like a kind of a glinting light on it until you've pushed it. And then at that point, we, we, we turn off that effect and we don't really use it anywhere else. But sort of the first time you are introduced to a type of interaction, we have this kind of 
little bit of a visual glint that's supposed to just subtly catch your eye. We're not trying to be like super obvious with it, but those are all kind of like some of the little tricks and things that we use in the game to try and help guide the player without being too handholdy or too uh, in your face about it. No, and the key with adventure games, and I think you and I stated this a couple of times in the show, but it's worth repeating that the way to get through an adventure game or any uh, of, of this sort um, is to know what tools you have, and and once you find that what what the what you can, and more importantly what you cannot do, the puzzles that are presented to you become much much straight much more straightforward because you realise well you can't do that so why am I trying to do that because I haven't been able to do that in the entire <laughs> experience up until this point so why am I trying to do something that's not not possible. Uh, very and, true yeah yeah but people just don't understand it man of times i've seen people stream games or stream um, adventure games and stuff and they're always doing things like why are you overthinking this and sometimes there, uh, there, there's some merit in the overthinking because the especially older games the the the, the puzzles were esoteric to say the least <laughs> um, yes so uh, yeah maybe there is some merit in that but most of the time you know, if if the game asks you to do something you haven't been doing for the past 30, 40 hours or however long you've been playing it, you probably shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Unless yeah, it's actually yeah. for sure. I was you know, Just to add to that, yeah, it's a... Uh, I think being able to communicate to the players what they can't do is also almost as important as communicating what you can do for exactly that reason. Because I think we've all played games where, you know, you get stuck, so you retread all of the areas you've been through looking to see if you missed an item somewhere or you, you know, you just, and you're not sure what, you know, there's too many little things around. You're not sure what you're supposed to interact with. Like, am I supposed to flush the toilet? Am I supposed to turn the lights on and off? Um, and those in a puzzle game, that can be a real problem. If you get stuck and you honestly have no idea what, what are the possibilities you can, can get completely in your own head and lost and have no idea what the, the path forward should be. Um, so I think, it can be very important, and I think it's one of the things. Actually, adventure games have, you know, they've seen a little bit of a revival. Um, I played through, was it Thimbleweed Park uh, recently, and like, it's fun how they take these these old school games, this sort of like this genre, and they, you know, they they've implemented all of these sort of, I would say, more modern game design philosophies to make the game more obvious about what you do need to do and what you don't need to do and what items can and cannot be combined uh, so that you have a little bit less of that like trial and error i guess i just have to do every single thing in the game and see which one works <laughs> yeah yeah right last question the sound design in uh, stella is exceptional really is um how is the development aligned with the design of the environment because i think they are just so intertwined with each other it's very impressive yeah they really are uh the music is fantastic and the sound design is fantastic in stella and uh you know we can't take too much credit for ourselves we we worked with uh an audio partner called a shell in the pit which is a local studio here in vancouver bc as well uh, and we worked very closely with them throughout development, uh, and they were instrumental in helping bring out the atmosphere of Stella. Uh, so what our process was to make sure that we were all in alignment was uh, 
we would be making gray box uh, and early alpha versions of all of our levels. And as soon as we had a, uh, you know, sometimes it wasn't even set up to be able to play through, but as soon as we had an environment uh, that was blocked in, we would create a gameplay video of it. And sometimes we would just, you know, the, the puzzles wouldn't be set up, but we would run the character through the level and show them where the puzzles are going to be. And, you know, maybe we'll just have like a, a T-posed monster in the background showing where an encounter will be. Uh, but we would put a video together, uh, put notes in the video saying, you know, here's where things are going to happen for about this long. Um, and we would send that over to them. Uh, we would send it with concept art that our artists had done of what the level will eventually look like. And I would write up a design brief for every level that would explain uh, what's supposed to happen in this level. And it would also describe what are the emotions or the experiences that we want the player to feel as they move through this level. And so that would, you know, in some levels that would go from a, a sense of, you know, calm or mystery, which would then develop into a sense of sudden dread as something's revealed to you, which may lead into a action, like a tense action moment as something chases you to a calm sense of relief where you've escaped the danger. And then, you know, it would go through like section by section, almost like a beat chart. Um, and I would send that over to them as well. And one of the important things to convey would be where is the player going to be gated? And we, we use that word to describe any place where the players might get stuck. Uh, so for example, if there was a puzzle uh, and the player is going to spend some time in that puzzle. You know, everyone's going to have a different amount of time depending on how quickly they solve it. But if there's an area where the player is going to get stuck, we would want to call that out because the music has to be able to loop there. And you also don't want it to have anything that's too distinct because you don't want it to get annoying. So, uh, and in contrast, if it's a section where we are going to have, say, a chase moment, you want to have the music uh, be exciting and sort of propel the player forward. So it was it was an interesting uh, challenge for them, I think, to to take all of these gameplay experiences that we were creating and find the right sound for them. Um, and they did an amazing job. Uh, they worked very closely with us. They even, uh, you know, we had they had access to our our uh, code and were helping implement some of the hooks for the different audio things. Um, and yeah, it was great. We worked back and forth with them. They, they would send over things. We would review it. We would give them our feedback. They would make any revisions. Uh, they were also instrumental in uh, creating all of the music for our trailers that we put out. Um, uh, yeah, they were fantastic. So yeah, Shell in a Pit is, they were, they were a pleasure to work with. <laughs> great. Fantastic. And uh, that's exactly the kind of feedback I was hoping to get on that question because it's a teensy bit nebulous, but thankfully there's some structure there. And the way you talked about how the sounds and music interact with the player and uh, how when you're in a, in a room that you know you possibly could get stuck in might, might do, you don't want that horrible loop of like, oh, God, I've heard the same <laughs> phrase at least 20 seconds, you know, 20 times now, make it end. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I call it the super hexagon uh, effect. Where you never hear thirty seconds of that song, um, and every now and again they say things like "line" and "square." Like, oh god! <laughs> yeah, and then you're you're hearing it in your sleep. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I still love that game, even though it hates me. Anyway, um, but no uh, credit to to everyone involved in creating such a rich and 
um, wondrous atmosphere that is both very oppressive and yet interesting and exciting at the same time uh, because you are looking at it vicariously. It's, this is not you in this situation. It's the person you're controlling. And uh, thankfully, you can put the controller down and go, well, this is not me. <laughs> because, it's, I mean, it is. It, it can be quite harrowing, some of it. It's like, oh, no. You know, and uh, you didn't ask for that. And uh, But, you know, th- these things happen in the game. I won't go into it any more than that. So, um, Stella by uh, Skylab Studios is out now on... Well, actually, uh, rather than me make a complete kerfuffle of this, would you, Sir Joel, like to tell us what platforms Stella is on? Sure, I'd be happy to. So, yes, uh, Stella is on Apple Arcade. It's on Nintendo Switch, Steam PC, and Xbox One. Uh, it's uh, available now, and you can uh, check it out on any, any of the platforms of your choice. And, uh, yeah, we if you're interested in uh, checking out uh, Skybox Labs, uh, we have a website, skyboxlabs.com. You can see some of the other games that we've worked on, uh, some of our collaboration and co-development uh, projects, as well as uh, our own IP, and uh, look forward to new games coming from us. And the name of the studio, where did that come from? Uh, <laughs> so that's a, a funny story. Uh, the founders are the ones who... Uh, who finally came up with it, but naming a game studio is a very challenging undertaking. Um, and I think, I think we had, like I said, when we started and there were sort of the eight of us, I think we had a um, list of maybe like a hundred different names. And as we went through the list, we had to keep pulling names off either because someone else had already used it or it was too similar or you know sometimes it wasn't even a game development company it would be a completely random studio or random work that had a similar name and uh, skybox had always been on that list uh skybox it's it's obviously a a piece of game development it's the you know the the box in the background of an environment that has the sky in it um so for us, it's kind of, you know, the sky's the limit, that kind of thing. We, we just like the idea that it tied into game development. And, you know, it's easy to say, it's memorable. Um, but yeah, it was funny. It was, more, it was more so a process of elimination of going through this huge list of games or uh, of names and then uh, finally being able to settle on one that was like, yeah, that one will actually be able to go through and we can actually register this as our name. As uh, we went through the finally si- going to the randomizer and go... Just pick two random words. I'm tired. Yeah, exactly. We were okay. almost there. <laughs> yeah. So we go. We had the. Yeah. Go on. What were we going to? I was going to say we had the we had the same uh, challenge when we uh, created our previous IP game, uh, Tasty Lethal Tactics. Uh, Tasty was our code name for the game, and when it came time to come up with uh, a release name. We had the same thing. We went through probably a hundred different names. In fact, we actually released an early access with a different name, um, which was a challenge for us. But then we did get a cease and desist from someone who felt their, our name was too close to theirs and had to change it again. And so we went back to our original name and went with Tasty, which sometimes people go, that's a strange name for a tactics game. Why did you go with that? But it was, uh, yeah, it was our, our code name. <laughs> <laughs> Well, everything is. I mean, like the the GameCube had Dolphin. Why? Yeah. You know, doesn't doesn't matter. The code names. Well, the PS One had PSX, didn't it? And that made sense because, you know, I think. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Code names aside, 
and not the board game, by the way. We're talking about Conan. <laughs> um, also a great game. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. With the right partner, otherwise. Yes. Don't you... <laughs> Why? <Yeah>. Don't, they... <laughs> Don't they make you play it in couples therapy? Isn't that how it works? There's a bunch of... <laughs> yeah, there's meant to be... A... with Yeah, oh boy. Uh, and so, <laughs> Team Seven Wonders is a, is a joy to behold as well. You haven't tried that? Highly recommend it. Uh, I have. Oh, it you is, have? Is, yeah. The yeah, I used like, to be... Pick I used to play one. tons of board games. Right. Um, yeah. Not as, many, not as many nowadays, especially no. with uh, quarantine and lockdown. But yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah miss board games. <laughs> but Joel, it's been yes. wonderful, wonderful having you on the show. Thank you for being well, so honest and open about the design and development of Stella. It's been really, really educating and interesting to... To, to listen to you expand on the the trials and tribulations of making such a wonderful piece of code. So thank you. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for being such a gracious host. It's been a, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, and you're more than welcome to come back and talk about the next okay. game, whatever that may be. Uh, well, I we, I might do that. That sounds great. <laughs> yes, we have had return guests because trust me, we'll be here. We will be here. Um, That's good to hear. But again. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, caneandrinse.com. <laughs>